I want to encourage you right now to find your Bible. Uh, there's a Bible on the book rack in, tr- in front of you right there. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 today, verses 13 through 16. There's a little outline in your bulletin as well. For those of you that like to take notes or carry out of this message today something that you would like to review during the week, don't forget all of our messages are on our website. They're vodcasted. You can watch them on video or audio. You can podcast them. Ways of refreshing yourself throughout the week and perhaps remembering things that maybe went over at the time. We're in a study in the book of Matthew. We're going to be here for a while. We're in chapter 5. We started back in late November, beginning this book. And so far in this book, here's the big picture for those of you that are new to us this morning. We've been looking at, we've been introduced to the king of the kingdom, chapters 1 through 4. We've met who Jesus Christ is. Chapter 5 begins a new portion of the book of Matthew. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first discourse section in the gospel where we really just read the words of Christ. And then soon after chapter 7, we'll go back into the works of Christ or narrative sections. And that kind of toggles throughout the book, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative. And so we're in a discourse section where we're actually listening to the words of Jesus. We began the Sermon on the Mount last week by looking at the Beatitudes, which describes for us the character of those who are in the kingdom. We meet the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, who are the subjects of the kingdom, that's you and me, that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not just because we're religious, not because we're in church this morning, but because we've placed our lives in his life. We've come to trust that his work at the cross and his resurrection is what brings to us life. And we've, we're all in. We've invested our lives. We've said, Jesus, save us. Jesus, live your life through us. And that's kind of a foreign concept for a lot of folks. In fact, I think a lot of people look at the church with sort of bewilderment. They don't really know what the church really is. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to uh, reconstruct a proper view of a covenant relationship with God. Uh, He's gonna take it from religion and put it into relationship and that's really what it's all about and so many people miss it. In fact, today, what we're looking at is not so much how we do church because a lot of people, this is just doing church. You came to church today and we're glad that you're here but for a lot of folks, this is traditional. We are doing church. Jesus, in the section we're gonna look at today, is not about doing church but about being the church. There's a difference. Are you doing church or are you being the church? Well, that's the theme of the morning message. So with that, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And it's a short section of scripture, probably familiar to some of us, as you'll see. And then we're going to talk about what it means. So let's, let's look carefully at the text. Chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is an amazing text. The difference between doing church and being the church. And really the upshot of this entire text is we're going to learn this morning that our relationship with Jesus makes us people of influence. Just say the word influence. 
Write it there in your outline if you're taking notes. Jesus is telling his disciples, those who belong to him, that our relationship with him make us people of influence. Now, you may not see yourself as an influential person. You might not consider yourself influential. Being influential does not mean that you have a seminary degree or that you have a Bible education or that you have studied theology. Uh, Nor does it mean that you've been in the church for any particular amount of years. Jesus declares what we are, we are people of influence. And he says we are so by looking at salt and light. There's a couple of things about this text that really makes me feel pretty good. When I think about the fact that our Lord Jesus calls me, calls us these two things, it's amazing to me. It, it really encourages me, and I hope it encourages you too. He says first as he looks to his children, those covenant people, those in relationship with him, he says, you are salt. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth. And now notice he doesn't say you dispense salt or you know where to get salt. He says you are salt. In fact, I mean this is what we are. He uses a pronoun uh, in, in the Greek language. This is placed in the emphatic which means it's the way Jesus would say you and you alone. Not you and every other religious person in the world. Not you and anyone else that has an idea or an opinion about God or who I am. Jesus says, you and only you. There is a distinct exclusivity in what Jesus is saying to his followers right here. And he's saying that to you and me if we know Christ as well. On my recent trip to, the, uh, to Thailand, I was on a short leg coming back. And I sat next to a young man and his wife who were from the U.K., and got to know him a little bit. Um, he told me that he owns three pubs in, in the downtown London area, very successful, and he was enjoying the complimentary beer service on the Bangkok Air for Airlines that we were flying. Now, it's so different in, in Asian countries. They just you know, give you everything, and here in America, you have to like buy a peanut or something. It's just... <laughs> It's kind of weird, but in Asia, they just kind of dole it out, and he was enjoying that service and telling me about his business, and we were having a great old time, and then it's sort of the conversation turned, and he said, what do you do? What, what, what are you up to? Why are you over here? And he was just vacationing with his wife. I said, well, I've actually, and usually I play around with people a little bit, you know, but this was a short flight. It was a one-hour flight, so I wanted to get right into it, you know. I said, well, I, I happen to be a pastor. I use the word vicar because I know he would understand that being from London. I said, I'm a pastor in a church, local church, and, um, and I've been over here training some Chinese pastors who want to get out of their country so that they can kind of feel safety, and, and we have a training center that we support in, in, in out, outside of Chiang Rai, and so he was just like all into that. And then he sort of burst out. He goes, man, that's so great. That's so fantastic because... I love meeting people that are religious. He goes, all the religions of the world, they're all doing the same thing. They're all about the same thing. I think you guys are fantastic. And he's just going on and on and on. I, I said, do you have a church that you attend in the UK? He goes, oh, no, I grew up in the church, but I got away from it. But what you guys do, that's so great, you know. <laughs> well, we only had a little time, but I tried to point out to this young man, as, as friendly as he was, that his view of, of Christianity and his view of what I was about was really pretty broad and really wasn't specific. I mean, I, I, I lovingly pointed out that not all religions teach the same thing. And so they can't all be equal because they all say different things. And not all religious systems actually do good for people. Have you been watching the news? <laughs> I mean, 
and that was sort of a one-off for him. He didn't really understand that. And I, I just shared a little bit of my own testimony and how God uh, saved me and went into that a little bit. And that was it. I mean, I encouraged him. I don't know what will ever come from that conversation, but it sort of struck me. I was thinking of Jesus' words when I was talking to him where he says, you. He says, me. He says, anyone who knows him. He says, there's this exclusivity. You are something that nobody else is. You are salt and you are light. Now, what's interesting about salt, uh, we know that um, there's no substitute for salt, right? I mean, we know that uh, we like there to be substitutes, but there really isn't. Good old sodium chloride. I mean, it's a very stable mineral, and there's really no substitute. Now, if you talk about sweetness, you can get all kinds of artificial sweeteners, right? But when it comes to salt, you really can't get anything like that. I would like to find that because salt's not that good if you, if you eat it a lot. So Jesus is offering a description here that is very exclusive. He says, you and only you, my followers, are salt. And despite uh, despite whatever else your religious background might be, if you don't have relationship with me, Jesus says, then you're not this. You're not that. You're not salt. Now, commentators often mention that one of the problems with this text is that Jesus doesn't provide any explanation for what he means when he says you're the salt of the earth. There's absolutely no inherent hermeneutic here at all. And that's surprising in a way, but in another way, it just it probably points out the fact that as soon as he said this to his disciples, you and you alone, you Christ followers, you ones that are following me, you are salt, that they would have already known what that was. They, they would have inherently known that what Jesus was talking about. Because in the culture of Jesus' day, salt was a very prominent mineral. It was a very prominent part uh, and substance in every person's life. Uh, And so let me suggest to you what I think is obvious in the text, and then we'll look at a few things that may not be as obvious and maybe a little speculation to it, but maybe put a little bit of of, uh, rounding to this whole point. I think primarily Jesus is talking about that being salt means that our influence slows moral corruption. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because salt in Jesus' day was just that. It was an agent that slowed moral corruption. What I mean by that is that if you had a hunk of meat, you didn't have a refrigerator, no refrigeration in those days, and so you would pack meat in salt, and salt was a preservative. Now, it's really important to understand that salt does not transform the meat It preserves the meat. It slows the decaying process. Eventually it decays, but it slows it down. I remember years ago, I had a friend that was into hunting. He went hunted, he got a deer, and he he didn't have enough room in his freezer, so he gave me a bunch of his deer meat, and I had it in my freezer for a while. And then there came a point where he wanted it back, and so uh, I put it in a box, and I put it in the trunk of my car, and then I promptly forgot to bring it by his house. I, mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, my kids were real young at the time. Who knows? I was spaced out. Whatever. And I remember that this was during the summer months. It was, uh, it was like middle of July. And suddenly my wife and I, you know, we're driving this car around, and, and we're like, do you smell something in the car? It's like, yeah, do we leave a diaper in here or something? This is really, it was terrible. And that went on for a few more days. And it might, you know, my mind, so like a week had transpired And I went out to put something in the trunk of the car and I popped the hood and whoa, this waft of putrefaction, it was so terrible. I mean, it almost knocked me over. Now, just since you've got that visual in your mind, let me just suggest, 
no amount of salt could have changed what I had going there at that moment. <laughs> and when I did drop the meat off at the guy, he wasn't really very happy about it. <laughs> Here's your meat. Anyway, so um, it's, it doesn't transform, it preserves. Now, on the other hand, I, I love smoked salmon. I don't know how many of you love smoke. I love smoked salmon. And in December, at one of our staff events, I won this little prize. I won one pound of sockeye smoked salmon. And I always save these things for special days because I love it so much. And, uh, and so it's out in my out a little pantry area in our house. And, and I, I just thought about the other day, I was cleaning the garage and I went to the pantry and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I, I wonder if this is still okay because I got it in December. So I pull out the box and I look at it and it says, best if eaten by June 2020. I think, I got a little time for this one. <laughs> and then I thought, best if eaten by. So that means you could probably go another couple of years if you really wanted to. And then I looked at how much sodium it had. In one pound piece of salmon, it had 5,280 milligrams of sodium. Wow, yeah. That tells me that that baby's gonna be preserved for a long time. The point I'm trying to make is that Jesus is making to his disciples the reminder that we, we slow the, the decaying process down. Just our presence in this culture and community slows moral corruption. Wherever we go, we have an influence in the workplace, in the public debate, in politics, in policy making, in neighborhoods, in schools, in families, in relationships. We are all influencing others by virtue of who we are, not because we do church, but because we are the church. We are, we are agents of, of slowing or preserving the culture or wherever we may be. And this is a beautiful thing to realize. Uh, what, it real, what we realize is that while we don't necessarily by our character transform, because only Jesus can transform a life. You know, living as a good neighbor doesn't transform your neighbor. It might lead them to see what has transformed your life, but it's kind of like the priest says, well, you know, my witness is I'm just a good guy, you know, and so I don't, I don't go to parties or whatever. Just fill in the blank. Just because you don't do whatever it is that you think is not moral or not right doesn't mean that anyone's going to come to Christ because of that. They might actually just think that you're just a good person, and if you're a good person, they can be a good person too. They may not even know why you're trying to live a good life. So that's why the moral argument of being a Christ follower, it really falls flat because Jesus' point was not that we become moral, but when he transforms our lives, we become a, a preservative in a climate that is constantly going downhill. And by the way, can I remind all of us that our, the moral climate of our culture is going downhill? <laughs> Do I need to remind anybody of that? Your parents of small children here today, you're thinking, oh my goodness, what is it gonna be like when my kids are in high school? You're already shaking in your boots about that. Because you see the climate of today and you see what's going on. And Jesus is saying, you and I actually become, we become beautiful agents of preservation. It's kind of like, you know, I, I'm out in, this, in the culture that you are in too and I'm a chaplain with Alameda County Fire so I do a lot of station visits and I've really been embraced and loved as a chaplain in this department and we have other chaplains too. But I get it, but the point is, and one of the reasons why I became a chaplain is I wanted to live among, I didn't want to just do all my stuff around Christians. I hope that's not offensive to you. I, I want to be out with people that don't know Christ because I want to be an influencer. 
And so it's a wonderful thing. I get an opportunity to go around the firehouses, and it's so funny. Sometimes I come in, and just my presence there sort of puts a different climate in the firehouse. You know, someone will say, hey, you know, Chuck, why don't you tell, Pat, why don't you tell Chaplain Vold what you just told us about the joke you learned the other day, or whatever, you know. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't think you like that joke. <laughs> it just kind of being around people sometimes makes them kind of rethink some of the things they do. I've never had anybody call me up and say, hey, a bunch of us are going out and getting wasted Friday night. You want to come? Just never happens. I've dropped in on people that probably are feel a little bit self-conscious of maybe the behaviors or the things that they're doing. And, and by the way, there's stuff that I've found myself doing that I'm embarrassed about too. So it's not like, I'm not trying to point fingers. I'm just saying this. When we're around people, wherever we are, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our at our workplaces, there should be a sense of, wow, this person is bringing something into this environment that actually kind of straightens us up a little bit, slows the process of decay down. You know, back in the 70s, I always tease about this, but, you know, back in the 70s, there was something big about, you know, like what Christians don't do. If you're a Christian, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do that. And so there, back then, a big thing was smoking. Like if you're a Christian, you don't smoke. And, and it's just kind of funny as I look back on all this because how in the world could we deduce that you couldn't be a Christian and smoke? I mean, smoking, I, I, I'll grant it, smoking's not healthy for you, but neither is sugar and neither is salt in, in big quantities. And so there's a lot of stuff that's not good for us. Sitting on your you know, rear end watching TV for 12 hours a day isn't good for you too. But there's this, this element of if you're a Christian, you don't do certain things. That's the moral argument, Right? And I remember back then being a Christ follower and coming into, you know, I'm coming into ministry and I'm learning things. And there, were, there was a guy in our church, an older guy who kind of helped out in the custodial area, and he smoked. He had a problem with smoking. He, did, he wanted to quit, but he couldn't quit. And every time he saw me, I don't know, it just, he felt like maybe he was a bad example to me or, you know, I would judge him or something. And literally, he would almost swallow his cigarette. <laughs> okay, have you ever seen somebody just kind of suck it inside, you know? And then I would almost like, I wonder how long he can do that, you know? That's got to be something special, you know. We're just, we have all kinds of things in our minds about what Christians do or don't do. And the point I'm trying to make is we, we just are, just being around others that don't know Christ, we can have an impact. And hopefully it's not an impact where we just feel like, you know, we're putting people down. We don't want to do that. But that there's this moral sense of that person makes me rethink the way I think of morality, the way I think of what our moral climate should be. And, you know, when we look at the slide in our culture of, of the moral slide going on, I, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to say that's not because there's, nothing, that there's something inherently wrong with our culture, although there is, but non-Christian people who are depraved in their hearts, who don't know Christ, are, li- are simply living out their convictions. They're just doing what comes natural to them. And so re- the real fault of why our culture is on the fast track of, of circling the toilet is because of us. We're not salty enough. That's just a reality. I'm not saying that in a judgment. I'm just saying the problem is not the culture. The problem is Jesus, he says it right here. He says, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses saltiness, how can it be salty again? So he's obviously talking about living a life in such a way that, that we are different. Like Romans 12.2 says, we'll put it on the screen, Romans 12.2. Say it with me. Let's read it out loud. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God calls us into transformation, not moralism, transformation, change on the inside. 
Second uh, Peter three eleven and twelve. Since everything's to be destroyed in this way, and in the context talking about the return of Christ and the judgment on the world, like we sang about earlier today. What kind of people ought you to be, Peter asks. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Peter's message is we should be holy. There should be a holiness in our life. and There should be such a character difference in us, like we learned from the Beatitudes, that people watch us and are around us and they say, wow, that's, that just makes me want to rethink the way I live my life. Um, Hebrews 12, 14, the writer of Hebrews, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The point is, Christians who are transformed on the inside have a passion for holiness. Jesus said that of his, of his disciples. He said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's what he said. We, we have such an undeniably different character than those in the world we read from the Beatitudes last week, um, and from that, we have a disposition that nobody understands. We can smile in the face of trial and danger and problems. So, enough there. The point is, Jesus no doubt was talking about a preservative that we apply to our culture. Secondly, likely, he was also talking about how salt provides taste to an otherwise bland and insipid culture. I mean, when he said to his disciples exclusively, you are the salt of the earth, uh, probably it's arguable that Jesus was also inflecting there the idea that we, we bring taste, we bring fullness, we bring abundance. There's something very positive about being salt. And by the way, we all love salt. I mean, I, I do. Um, I love salt on things. Think about what you like salt on. I mean, I, mean, I think about French fries immediately. <laughs> I can't eat French fries without just sprinkling a little salt. I can't have eggs without sprinkling a little bit of salt. A juicy steak, I, no matter how it's been seasoned in the restaurant, I always want to take a little salt and just put a little I just love salt on those. Or what about buttered popcorn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> salt. And for all of you that are on a salt, you know, low-sodium diet right now, you are hating this sermon because <laughs> it's just driving you crazy. But the point is, salt does bring taste, and there is no substitute for it. I was reminded this morning in the lobby when someone walked up to me and we talked a little bit more. Salt also increases thirst, doesn't it? And I think if we were a little, if we were the salt that Jesus calls us to be, we would be infecting society with a thirst for something that they could never find outside of themselves. So th- there's this, this beautiful thing about salt that, that tastes so good. I, I remember as a freshman in high school, little tweaky guy, you know, more tweaky than I am right now, you know, um, Probably not much, but anyway, I was. And big glasses and kind of a nerdy little kid, and I was in the band and all that. And, and there was a guy in my high school campus. I was a freshman. He was a junior at the time. His name was Joe. And I remember Joe, he, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit. He was also in band, but he was an athlete too. So he, he had my respect, but he had even more respect because he's kind of a guy. He was an artisan, and he was a warrior, you know. And he's just one of those guys, kind of the, the popular guy on campus, but he took interest in me. Like little Larry, you know, so he'd kind of, you know, I remember one of the first days I brought my little bag lunch, you know, thankfully it wasn't my Snoopy lunch pail that I had brought (laughs) in my earlier years, but anyway, I'm in high school and I'm kind of alone. I had a couple of friends my age, but we're freshmen, come on. And I remember Joe coming up, hey, can I sit here? Can I, can you sit? Yeah, yeah, sit down, you know, so we're just having lunch. He gets to know me a little bit. And just over the next few months, I remember Joe just kind of taking me under his wing a little bit, showing me around, introducing me to some people. Wow, Joe, 
And then when I became a sophomore, the Lord began, and I was a Christian at the time, as a freshman, I was a Christian. But I was kind of the closet Christian, you know, I was kind of, kind of watching all this stuff. My life was kind of emerging at that point, like people that age does. And, and I remember, um, I remember when he, when I became a sophomore and, and I began to really hunger for the Lord and seeing the Lord working in my life, I, I discovered that Joe was a Christian. And then it all made sense to me why Joe would take time with Larry. Because he was just being salt. He was thinking about a kid that needed a little guidance and wanted to come alongside of him. You know, every time you reach out to people that you think could use a little help, you're just being salt. You make life taste better. I always liked to see Joe coming down the hall because I always felt like I had an ally when Joe was around me. And then it all made sense. Joe was a Christ follower. And I'd, I've never seen Joe ever since. So, you know, he graduated. I became a junior and he was gone. And just that just, in fact, I, Joe impacted my life because I began doing that with others because I knew that was the way Joe as a Christ follower would be. And he doesn't even know this. I can't even remember his last name. But I remember how much he impacted me. And he was a Christ follower. You know how much impact you bring into people's lives when you live as Christ? You reach out to people. You take time with people. You step across the line a little bit to get into somebody else's world. When you take interest in something that's not of your own, when you fall in love with Christ, you suddenly become more interested in others than you do yourself. You know, everything, everything changes. Life changes. We should bring great taste. In fact, I think our lives should be so winsome that we should cause unbelievers to doubt their belief that there is no God. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, the, the things that make us doubt as Christ followers, why don't we throw a little doubt in other people's lives? By, by the way we live. So they go, wow, I, I thought there was no God and Christians were all a bunch of hypocrites and they're just a bunch of people that think they're holier than everyone else. Man, this, this guy's impacting my life. Where is he anyway? Where is she? I need that person around. I'm in trouble. Who do I call? I call my Christ-following friend. They may not even know they're a Christ-follower, but there's something so different about their lives. I know we all want that, don't we? There's another thing that Jesus may, may have meant here, and I'm going to be a little more speculative because I don't know. Uh, certainly, he meant preservation, number one. He probably meant uh, a taste that there was something winsome about our lives. We bring fullness and meaning into people's lives. But there's a third thing, possibly the demonstration of what it means to be fully surrendered to God, trusting in his provision. Now, where I get that, as I was studying this passage, it struck me. I thought, where, where else do you read about salt in the Old Testament? If you do a word study, immediately you come to like Lot's wife. Well, God turned her into a pillar of salt. Yeah, we're not going there. That's not what I'm talking about. But I found a curious statement in three places, only three places in the whole Old Testament that uses a phrase, a covenant of salt. You find it in Leviticus, Numbers, and Second Chronicles. And as I studied those texts, there's no explanation of what the covenant of salt is. It's kind of weird. So then I, I, you know, drilled into it a little bit, and I'm going to suggest some things about this and how this maybe affects what Jesus was saying. Because remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. And any Jew understood salt as a preservative, probably understood it as a flavoring, but probably also considered salt the way the Old Testament saints considered salt. 
Let's look at the first one. It's in the book of Leviticus. And you know, we went verse by verse through the book of Leviticus a couple summers ago. It's been a great study. And you can go online and, and download all those messages too. But in Leviticus 2, remember God says to the people, he says, do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Now that's weird. I, when we studied that, I didn't bring that up at all. I remember seeing it, but it didn't really register with me. Why did God want him, them to put salt on everything? Well, guess what? Almost all the sacrifices were later to be consumed by the, the people that brought the sacrifice. So oh, I like that. God wanted it to taste good. <laughs> but there's another thing about the offering that we were to put salt on because salt had value. Salt was expensive. In fact, in some periods of history, in England, for example, salt was even a wage. Have you ever heard the statement, that guy is worth his salt? Salt is actually a wage. And so maybe when God said for his people to put salt on all the offerings, he was saying, you're gonna bring the offering, but you're also gonna bring a, a, a monetary offering. You're gonna bring something that's like a wage and you're gonna put it on this offering. All right. So that's one little encounter. Then the next one, we come to uh, Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. And in Numbers 18, there's a picture now of the priests who are doing the, the sacrifices. And God says to the priests, he says, whatever is set aside from the holy offerings, the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Now here he's talking to the priests. Remember, the priests did not have an inheritance. They were only given what was given in the offerings. Okay, interesting. So God says, this is a covenant of salt. You're going to live off the offerings of my people. All right, so that picture is, we're gonna trust God that he's gonna provide for our needs. And then the last time we see this phrase covenant of salt comes in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse five where God writes, and this is now has nothing to do with priests, nothing to do with offerings, he speaks about King David. He says, don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Weird. What he's saying is, you can trust me to provide in perpetuity a king to sit on the throne of David even long after you're gone, David. You live a surrendered life to me and trust me that I'm going to keep my promise all the way to the end. And the covenant was a covenant of salt. So maybe Jesus, maybe, I don't know. Maybe Jesus was saying, when you live a life so surrendered to me, trusting for my provision in your life, you are actually being the salt I call you to be. And that sheds some light on the way we live. In fact, it also sheds light on what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, when he said to his disciples there, differently than what we find in Matthew 5, he said, have salt in yourself. Mighty meant, show surrender, show trust in God's provision in your life. And that will be a way that you impact a culture for me. All right, so I think that's, I, I like that, that makes, I think, wow, Lord, you have called us to be salt. And then he says that you are also, we are also light. We're the light of the world. Wow, this, this feels really good too. Again, emphatic, you and only you, not anyone else who's just religious, but you and only you are the light of the world. Now remember Jesus said of himself, John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. So it's pretty amazing that he would include us in the same, you, me, anyone who follows Christ are the light of the world. 
And he gives us a clue in verse 16 as to what this is about. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds. So we know that light has a sense of goodness. It illuminates, but the illumination comes out of a life of doing something good. That's what Jesus said here. Let your light shine so that they may see your good deeds. See your good deeds. So, I'm putting this into a principle. I believe what Jesus meant when he said you're the light of the world is that we should do good for others wherever and whenever we can. We should be about doing good. I like what John Wesley, the great 16th century theologian and founder of the Methodist movement, said, and I quote, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you ever can. I think he pretty much covered it all. That's awesome. You wake up every day saying, Lord, show me where I can do good today. Just point me out, Lord. Someone at work, someone in my neighborhood, where, can I get through my day without seeing a need that, that I could somehow meet or approach to meet in a way of doing good for somebody. Oh man, if we, if we just have our eyes open, God will show us all kinds of opportunities. They're everywhere. But here's the deal. A lot of us, we're not thinking that way. Jesus said, uh, if our light, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Some of your translations say under a bushel. Uh, the, the idea there was w- the light uh, in the house, first century, it's kind of a little tray with a candle on it and feed, fed by oil, perhaps a lamp with oil. And then there was this cup or a bowl that would be placed over when you wanted the light to go out. It would extinguish the light. And Jesus says it's foolish to start a light and then not use it. Nobody would light a light and then put the bowl over the light because the essential element of light is to shine. It illuminates, it shows it shows something. And Jesus calls us the light of the world. We, we demonstrate such a goodness to the world that people say, wow. You know, if you walked out today and you could do this, do this in your neighborhood sometime this week. I mean, I, here's a little experiment, a little social experiment. You talk to somebody in your neighborhood, bump into them. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it's great. Love the weather. Isn't it amazing? Hey, I've always wanted to ask you a question. Just, just for fun. When you think of the church at the three crosses, and they may not even know you go there. And if they do know you go there, you could say, you know, I go to that church. When you think of that church, what first comes to your mind about that church? I'm just curious. And just see what the response is. It might be very telling to you. Some might say, well, you know, I don't know anything. They have a full parking lot. Uh, ask people over here in John Drive. That church screws up my Sunday every single week. I can't get out of my church. I can't get out of my parking lot because of you guys. <laughs> Um, so you might be, it might be interesting. They might say, oh, that's the church that does these amazing theatrical productions that are amazing. They're fantastic. I've been there. And those have transformation moments. No question. Or maybe there are people that have recently been introduced to our food bank program. And like someone recently with tears in their eyes said, thank you for providing food for my family. We can't make it month to month without this help. Or maybe somebody that you bump into down somewhere in San Leandro or Hayward or right here in Castro Valley, they say, oh, that's the church that, that gave me a sleeping bag when I was really cold, when it used to be cold during the winter here in Castro Valley. 
there's something that somebody put touch on that was from this church and that's what they associate with. So here's the deal. Here's the, here's, this is the hiccup factor. If they've never seen anything good come out of our lives and we're asking that question to somebody, that's probably what they're going to think of when they think of our church. And I think it's really convicting and it's probably something that we would be afraid to do. But what would happen if every time or let's say 80% of the time when you dropped in on somebody in your neighborhood or in this community and you asked them what they thought of when they thought of this church or any church in our community, what if people immediately thought, well, there's a place where people do so much good. It blows my mind. I think that would be wonderful, don't you? Because the gospel is not just telling people words. The gospel is good news because we are saved from a life of sin but the gospel is also being good news. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And by the way, when you think about hospitals and relief work and uh, human trafficking and drug and alcohol addiction programs and all that, you can oftentimes trace those kinds of works back to the church, back to God's people. It's amazing. The first hundred universities in this country were begun by Christians for the purpose of expanding Christian education, Yale, Harvard. Ah, they've come a long ways, haven't they? But you can trace hospital work, relief work. And there's a lot of benevolence going on in our world and a lot of uh, philanthropic people that are doing great work. I, fantastic. The world is a sorry place and it needs a lot of help. But where's the church in all this? Are we just doing church or are we being the church? And Jesus said, when you're salt and light, you're not just doing church, you're being church. This means we do good for others whenever we can. You know, I've, I've memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 years ago, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith and not of works. It is a gift of God that no one should boast. Beautiful verse. Most of us have memorized or know that verse, and we champion that verse. But we don't look at verse 10 where it says, and we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance. We're really good at knowing that we are saved without works, and we're actually, unfortunately, pretty good at living for Christ without our works too. And I want to challenge all of us to take a new look at this. There's plenty of room and plenty of opportunity. And not only does our works uh, do that in doing good for people. And all through the New Testament, this is not a one out, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10. That's not a one out. The book of Titus, seven times we should be eager for doing good. The book of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we should be doing good and in so doing so silence the ignorant talk of foolish people that are ridiculing the church. We should be giving people no cause to ridicule the church because we are so in to helping others. And by the way, we can practice that in our own church among each other. Which brings me to the last thing real quickly. There's a couple things that we should feel good about, but also a couple things we should be concerned about quickly. Uh, first, we should be concerned that somehow we could lose our saltiness. That's what Jesus said. See that, verse 13? If we lose our saltiness, how can we be made salty again? Now, some of you are chemists and you're into this, you know, you know that salt is a stable compound, sodium chloride. It's stable. How, could, how come Jesus said we could lose saltiness if salt can't lose its saltiness? Well, remember that in this day and age, salt was uh, mined. It was like an ore. And oftentimes it would be ored among many other mirac uh, uh, minerals and then placed in piles. 
And if laid too long in those piles between the weather components and the other minerals that mixed in, it became more difficult to extract the ore of salt. And maybe that's what Jesus meant because even right now in archaeological digs in Syria and in parts of this part of the world, they find in these archaeological digs salt uh, mounds, mounds where salt substances were there. Obviously, the salt had become to leach out, and so they were not used. And in fact, those piles would then be just used for footpaths because nothing grows in salt either. So maybe that's what Jesus meant. But the point that he was getting at is that somehow we could lose our saltiness, which in a sense, watch this, when he says, no, he says that we would be good for nothing He says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Here's a simple principle that we can get from that. We should be concerned because if we lose our saltiness, we basically become good for nothing. Now, that's a strong way of saying something. And the Holy Spirit checked me a little bit because I told first service today, I said, you know, if, if, we're, if we're never thinking about others and we're kind of living for ourselves and we're just kind of into this Christian thing because of what God will do for us, Number one, we may not even be a Christ follower. And number two, if we are a Christ follower, we're basically good for nothing. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, it's not like you want to go home today and say, wow, the pastor called us all a bunch of good for nothing people. You know, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying what Jesus said. If we're not into doing good, then we're good for nothing. And there's a lot of seasons in my life where I've been good for nothing. And I want God to constantly be tweaking my heart. And I said a minute ago, we can practice it right here. I heard a story not long ago, and I hear these stories from time to time, and it just rips my heart apart as a pastor, that somebody came into our church, they were new, it was obvious they were new, and as they came to find a seat, as you notice, you can look around this morning, a lot of us sit on the aisle seats, and we understand, some people need to get out and all that, and the aisle seats are comfortable, a little more leg room, fine, great, but we can get kind of crowded, and it's hard, for, so anyway, here's a guest coming in, and they kind of point over a person sitting on the aisle, can I sit there? And the person said, no, it's, I'm saving it. Now, the, the odd part about this story is the person telling me this was kind of watching all this a few rows back, and the person was a little sheepish, and then they turned around, and they went over, and they found, they crawled over somebody else and got into a seat, and then no one ever came to those seats that the person said was reserved. Now, maybe the person just didn't show up, they got hit in our parking lot, and who, who knows what happened. <laughs> but this person telling me the story said, man, I was going crazy, thinking, what did that guest have to think about that? And when that person told me that, I said the same thing. I said, those kind of things drive me crazy because number one, you know how hard it is for people that are new to come into a church that they've never been to? Wow. Just, if you're a Christ follower, just go visit a church some Sunday. I'm commissioning you. Go visit a church some Sunday and just feel how that feels. To not be known, to be a guest, to be someone that doesn't understand all the rules and all the, you know, inherent things that we do. It's scary. And now think about that with a person that doesn't even know Christ, perhaps. And they're driving by and they see the crosses like a guy told me this week and his life was a mess. And when he saw the crosses, he decided, I'm going to go give that place a shot. And he sat right in here and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a few weeks later, he saw a postcard that talked about divorce care. He's going through a messy divorce. And he said, somewhere between divorce care and sitting in services on Sunday morning, Jesus made himself real to me. I came to know Christ. And he said, Pastor, I'm so glad to meet you because I've never met you two years in our church. And I was just, wow, I'm really honored. I was touched by that. His name is Sam. Sam, if you're here, thanks for your story this week. It was so cool. But I realized, like he realized, it's scary to come into church 
And we need to be so conscious of that. If somebody comes up to you and says, can I sit here? Say, absolutely. I would love to have the opportunity to sit with you. I mean, don't be that over the top. That'll be weird. <laughs> but graciously invite people in. If there's not enough room, you get up and move somewhere else. We're comfortable sitting in the same places. I look at you every Sunday. I'm in the same place every Sunday. Most of you are in the same place every Sunday. <laughs> we get comfortable with where we sit. Listen, if somebody comes and wants to sit with you, let them. Make it easy. Let them go in front of you. Bless them. Encourage them. Buy them a cup of coffee. Encourage them. It's so scary to come into church if you're alone, if you've never been. Wow. And we ought to be bringing lots of folks that have never been. Because this is a place where salt and light can be seen and experienced. And hopefully off this hill and out in the world. Well, we should be concerned about somehow concealing our light too. And the point has already been made. We can put a bucket over the light that God's given them to us because we simply don't care. We simply don't pour out. So, we're salt. We're light. We need to shake it out. And we need to turn it on. Because that's who we are. This morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer.